2: <laughs> this was a a fantastic, packed episode talking about osteoporosis. It's been like over three years since we did an osteoporosis episode.
0: It's, I'll mention again when Stuart's not here. And by the way, everyone, Stuart's not here. <laughs> um, just you you come in much less hot. It's almost like you're a little bit defeated. I'm not sure. There's a different energy, um, which I'm okay with you sounding defeated. But it's just it's it's fascinating to me.
2: Yeah, you're... <laughs> You know, without Stewart here, that it's just it's it's always a little weird, Paul. But uh, what are you going to do? We we have to do, press do on. Did you miss somebody
1: interrupting you? Is that what happened?
2: <laughs> Thank you. Isabel's here, so uh, we'll introduce her fully in a second. Um, our guest tonight is Dr. Carolyn Crandall from UCLA. She's an internist and an expert in osteoporosis. Uh, I wanted to remind everybody that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals. Through VCU Health Continuing Education, you can visit curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to get credit. And Paul, before we introduce Isabel fully and uh, our our wonderful guest, can you tell the audience what is it that we generally do on this show?
0: Sure, Matt. Generally, we <laughs> I generally we we screw around up front and then. We, we talked to an expert, but I think what you're getting at is that we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. As you alluded, we have a physician assistant extraordinaire, Isabel Valdez, with us, um, who produced this episode and put together just a fantastic uh, recap and update of the management and diagnosis of, of osteoporosis and low, low bone mineral density, I think is the new term. We're not allowed to say osteopenia anymore. Is that That's
2: right?
0: That's true. Okay. So... Um, So I stand chastened before you, but before I embarrass myself further, why don't I pass the mic to to Isabel who will tell us uh, all about the fantastic guest that she has
1: for us. Yeah, I'm happy to. Tonight we had the great pleasure of interviewing Dr. Carolyn Crandall, who is an internal medicine physician and osteoporosis researcher. She is a professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at uh, UCLA. She lectures frequently regarding osteoporosis, striving to reduce the burden of fractures and ensure evidence-based osteoporosis care.
2: And without a pun, we will move on to the interview. Paul, you you look like you want to say a pun, but I know you don't. No,
0: I'm just, you know, bone to pick, hate to break it to you, so forth, so on. (laughs) There we go, now it feels right.
2: (laughs) Carolyn, welcome to the show. I hope we haven't scared you off with all the uh, pre-recording stuff, but thank you so much for joining us, and can you tell the audience a one-liner about yourself?
3: Sure, it's a pleasure. So, uh, I'm an internal medicine physician, mother of two grown boys. I love potato chips, Mozart, knitting, French medieval literature, and I just had my 30th wedding anniversary during the COVID outbreak. That is just
2: that is just wonderful. All of that, <laughs> uh, Except for the COVID outbreak, but everything else thing. is fantastic. Yeah. Well, great to meet you and thank you for, thank you. We're so excited to talk to you about this topic, but first we have some more stuff that we wanted to ask.
0: Yeah. I I normally ask book recommendations. I, I'm sorry to change it up on you. I think I'm going to ask for a potato chip recommendation.
2: (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) Paul, (laughs) because (laughs) we can't let that slide. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Okay. Um, my favorite are actually Hawaiian style potato chips. That's, and they're kind of a kettle-ish type potato chip. Those are my very favorite. I just love those.
0: And is there a particular brand that you recommend? I mean, we wouldn't fight being sponsored by potato chips, I don't think. <laughs> no. <laughs>
3: you no, know, I would say no. Uh, I like them all.
0: <laughs> okay, that's a fair answer. All right,
2: Paul. Oh, that is, I, I really like the potato chip. Uh, that is, uh, out of many, many interviews, that is the first time anyone's mentioned <laughs> potato chips. I
0: mean, I have questions. I, I could do this for the rest of the night, but we have more things to talk about. <laughs> I think. There's no
3: salt, though. I'm, i which is not good for my blood pressure. Don't <laughs>
1: stays here. It stays here. <laughs> Isabel? Um, I'm super excited to have you here, Carolyn. And uh, as the other woman in the room, I'd like to ask, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've been given or that you give to those of us in medicine, uh, particularly for uh, as- women who are aspiring to be doctors like you or physician assistants or nurse practitioners?
3: Uh, Well, I think one of the most helpful things the mantra that i sort of keep in mind and like to spread around is when you don't know a field a topic say so and if you're afraid of being embarrassed say you know um i'm wondering some of us may not be that familiar with what you're talking about i wonder if you could just let us know rather than like leave the room not know what people are talking about. And you know that someone else in there didn't understand either. And I think that's just one thing that maybe possibly women may be more shy about doing in group settings. Um, so in terms of career advice, I feel like that's uh, that's something important to learn how to do.
2: I like it. I'll take it. <laughs> Similarly, I wanted to ask about career advice because I was very excited to see that uh, when, when we booked you for the show that you're an internist, fellow internist, and you've made yourself an expert in osteoporosis. So can you talk a little bit about how that happened? Uh, was that something that was like a plan from the start or d- did you just just fall into it? I, I think that's always interesting for us in the audience.
3: Yeah, I have a strange, circuitous way that I ended up that way. So for, for internal medicine, first of all, that was... An idea that um, I wanted to be with my patients from beginning to end of whatever life trajectory brought with them in terms of their health and being of support to them. Um, and to me, internal medicine fit that need really well. Uh, in terms of the osteoporosis, basically, I was already an associate professor at UCLA uh, eight years into my faculty position. And I said, you know, um, I have published. 30 clinical scholarly reviews. And obviously there's something I seem to be missing in my life here. I think I'm going to go back. I'm getting a master's in clinical research. I had two little kids at home. It was not an easy feat, but I did that. And I was uh, focusing my research on the intersection between osteoporosis and menopause and practicing at an internal medicine for women clinic. So it fit in really well because it's a special clinic that provides internal medicine care for women. And um, so I continued being a PCP, an internist, but a general internist, but then I, in addition, would do consultation on osteoporosis, which is, and menopause, which are my uh, research um, foci.
2: That's wonderful. Our sponsor today is Indeed. AI can do some incredible things, but for most jobs in your company, you need a good old-fashioned carbon-based life form, preferably a brilliant one, preferably as soon as possible. If you're looking for great minds that move the world, you can hire them with Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. You can post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. You get your quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster. You only pay for the candidates that meet must-have qualifications, and you can schedule and complete video interviews right in your Indeed dashboard. With tools like Indeed Instant Match and Indeed Skills Test, you get quality candidates whose resumes fit your job description immediately, and on average, it reduces hiring time by 27%. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Internal Medicine. That's right, a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Internal Medicine. Indeed.com slash Internal Medicine, offer valid through June 30th, terms and conditions apply. Well, we have tons of osteoporosis questions for you tonight. Isabel, would you start us off with a case here?
1: Yes, I've got uh, our first case from Cashlack Memorial. We've got Ms. Brittle Wesso is a (laughs) 67-year-old Caucasian female uh, that presents uh, for dental clearance, and she has a history of rheumatoid arthritis that she has been treating with prednisone at first, but now with methotrexate. She just completed her DEXA, her bone density test earlier this morning, as you had ordered it a couple months ago. And the impression is that she had osteoporosis of the left hip with a high fracture risk and osteopenia of the left forearm, which said the fracture risk is increased. So this osteoporosis really caught her by surprise. So wants to take action now.
3: Right, right. So I think the the first thing I would do is explain um, some p- patients and physicians get confused by the way the bone density reports are sort of laying out in that impression uh, at the bottom, the conclusion section. It says both osteoporosis and osteopenia. But actually, every person only has one diagnosis, and it's the lowest one or if you want to call it the worst one, which in this case is the osteoporosis. So her diagnosis is osteoporosis, and um, it's, that diagnosis is based on the lowest T-score. So that would be the first thing that, that I would um, explain. Um, yeah. And I don't tell them about all this definition about microarchitectural disruption and skeletal fragility, because I feel like that's a little overwhelming to patients, even though we as physicians want to know about that. But um, what I tell them is that, is that it will increase their risk of fracture potentially, and that's why we want to talk about uh, measures we can take to protect them.
0: Even even more fundamentally, did, when you're talking to patients about osteoporosis, do you, do you define it for them? I mean, I, I, I'm sure some of a fair amount are sort of this vague idea that it's thinning of the bones, but how do you frame that conversation when you're actually discussing osteoporosis and osteopenia?
3: I I, I try to simplify a little bit by saying it's a... It's a um, a delicate bone or a fragile bone that makes it more susceptible or increases the risk of having a break or fracture in the bone. And that some people get a fracture without even having low bone density. And so I think it's good to sort of talk about it as I think you have a low bone strength, either low bone density or because you've had some fragility fracture. And that makes you prone to having more broken bones later. That's how I explain it.
2: Can we go ahead up front and define what would be a clinical diagnosis of osteoporosis from a a so-called fragility fracture?
3: Right. So there's overlap there. Um, The clinical diagnosis would be a T-score less than or equal to negative 2.5 on a DEXA scan, a dual energy X-ray absorptiometry scan. And the other way you can have a diagnosis, so there are two ways. The other way is if you've had a minimum trauma fracture, a fragility fracture, particularly at the hip and uh, spine, hip or spine, those also will qualify you. So even if, let's say you get a chest x-ray and someone has a crushed vertebral fracture that nobody ever knew about, um, assuming it's not from a big traumatic car accident, that person does have osteoporosis, no matter what their bone density is, and you don't want to be misled about that.
2: I was I was literally talking to a patient uh, recently at CashLac, and the patient was telling me, you know, I twisted my ankle and I broke my ankle when I fell, and they called it osteoporosis, but I had normal bone density, so they were kind of questioning the diagnosis of osteoporosis. And sometimes you you see people they fall and they like they break a wrist or they you know they don't quite have the hip or spine fracture. Does it get a little bit of a gray area there, whether or not that person has
3: osteoporosis? It does. And there is some controversy, not for wrist, though. For wrist, forearm fractures occur tend to occur in slightly younger women in contrast to the hip fracture, which happens, tends to be more common much later on. The wrist fracture, actually, uh, we did a study on it showing that in the next 10 years, about there's about a 20% chance of having another fracture after that initial wrist fracture among postmenopausal women. So it is high risk, like this is a warning sign, ding, 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 um, to try to think about uh, what might be going on. And certainly bone density evaluation in that setting, a postmenopausal woman with a new forearm fracture, that's an indication for checking bone density. And there's a little controversy about should we really diagnose that by itself as osteoporosis? Mm, that issue is not quite come to agreement yet in guidelines.
2: So it's not, not quite as clear. And with the ankle, is it the same thing where it would cause you to look, but not necessarily cause?
3: Ankle is much more controversial. Okay. Some experts think that ankle is the only site that we shouldn't consider that way. So typically, like fingers, toes, feet, uh, skull: humorous maybe we don't tend to consider okay. those as osteoporosis, and probably ankle probably goes in there too, but it's just a little more controversial, whereas wrist for sure is more common in people. it's linked with osteoporosis with low bone density and increased risk of subsequent fracture
2: yeah the the other thing that I found a little bit just. For instance, when you're talking about the frac score, which I'm sure we'll mention some of the scores later, you talk about major osteoporotic fractures. I usually think, as you mentioned, the hip and the spine, but are, is it should we lump the wrist in there with that and, and, and those are the three? Are there any others that expert most experts would call a major osteoporotic fracture?
3: Right. so so the definition of major osteoporotic fracture is based on what, at least traditionally, we mimic, as you said, what FRAX defines it as. And the definition by the FRAX risk predictor of an MOF, major osteoporotic fracture, would include actually four things. It's distal forearm, hip, clinical spine, and upper arm. So like the humerus would count. So four sites actually.
2: Thank you. Sorry to, sorry to hijack things there for a second, no, Paul. This I helpful. just is those... That, the way my brain works I just like because this i I tend to get in these conversations with patients or residents i'm like should we consider this osteoporosis or not based on the way, the mechanism of the fracture you know if someone falls off a ladder and breaks something I think it's like that's a little bit different the mechanism's right. high high impact but I, I do see a, p- a lot of people with these these other site fractures that i'm not really sure how to classify so that that was really helpful thank you
0: all right so Carolyn you, you said this patient's has osteoporosis. They don't have osteoporosis and osteopenia. But while, while, we're, while we're on the topic, could you define osteopenia for us and just tell us how we differentiate that between osteoporosis and, and how uh, also how you discuss it with patients? I always find that very helpful.
3: Sure. So now actually, the preferred term is no longer osteopenia, it's actually low bone density. So we're really then talking about differentiating between low bone density and osteoporosis. I know that sounds confusing. Yeah. But it's a T-score between negative one and negative 2.5, whereas osteoporosis is a T-score less than or equal to negative 2.5. And the way I talk about it is, yes, many, the majority of fractures probably happen in people with osteopenia, or as we should be calling it now, low bone density. But it's not because they're at higher risk. It's only because there are many more women with osteopenia. Right. Does that make sense? Sure.
2: So, this patient, our, our first patient here, Ms. Brittle, she, she pretty clearly has major risk factors. She has rheumatoid arthritis. She's taking prednisone and she, she has a low T score. So, how might you talk to her about uh, her treatment options?
3: Uh, what I like to do is if someone actually has um, a bone density defined osteoporosis, I want to explain nobody uh, has this in a vacuum. So we start thinking of people as a whole, right? It's not just a number, a T-score. So we think, okay, just kind of looking at your overall pattern, because of that rheumatoid arthritis and that kind of medication that's unfortunately rather toxic to your bones, it means that I can't just say, oh, this will go away next year because you're going off your medicine or because your disease will get better. I wish I could say that. That's actually how I put it to the patient. Mm. And so that means that we should be considering a medication that's going to decrease your risk of hip fracture because those are the really serious ones that put you in a wheelchair or can kill you or put you in a nursing home. And what we're gonna do is try to balance out, think about what's your risk of fracture without the medicine compared to what's your risk of some really rare, strange side effect with the medicine. And for most women in your situation, we're gonna expect that your risk of fracture without it is gonna be a lot higher than your risk of some really rare adverse effect if you're taking the medicine. That's sort of the general way that I I put things.
2: Do you have any of those handouts or, I know the ACE guideline has like, you know, your risk of getting struck by lightning, your risk of having, Osteonecrosis of the jaw, think dying in a car accident; those kind of things, and they just sort of show you like what is actually a high risk, what's a lower risk event. But I find that some patients are just like, "Nope, I read about those online. I will, I will not take those." So I'm not sure if you have any any resources that you rec- can recommend to the audience to help overcome that, or if you,
3: you know, I don't. I mean, I I tell them. What I do is I give them a handout about two position statements that I really like. One of them is from a task force, um, an international task force on osteonecrosis of the jaw, which is a really um, awful side effect of bisphosphonates and denosumab. And um, what they've done is they've actually included a patient handout in that position statement. And it's wonderful. So I use that. And I tell them the numbers in there, you know, one in ten thousand. Like I emphasize how unusual this is, and then I say, you know, but your risk of fracture actually might be one in five in the next ten years. So, as an example, let's let's emphasize that the chance of you having some benefit is a lot far outweighs the chance of you having some rare side effect. And I do the same with a typical femoral fracture, which is ranges uh, about fifty in a hundred thousand people who would take a usual five-year course of a bisphosphonate, let's say. Um, but that one is duration-dependent, and that could go up to 100 and 100,000. So I actually give these numbers. Now, honestly, I'm not sure physicians can even wrap their heads around the numbers, but I do it because it I think it emphasizes the rarity, because otherwise people get so scared. They read the package inserts, and they I don't blame them for being scared. It, it seems overwhelming. And it seems maybe like the media make it makes it feel like uh it's a lot more common than it honestly is. So that's how I tend to tend to phrase it with people.
2: Paul, any specifics you wanted to ask about uh, about treatment, common things that you're running into with your patients?
0: No, I mean I feel like we we have a subsequent case that will go deep, deep, deep into treatment. So I don't think that anything springing to mind right now. Like, I think we can save it for when we're actually talking about our, our treatment plans.
2: So maybe we can talk about with this one, since we we talked a little bit about the diagnosis, we we got the DEXA scan, we talked a little bit about the terminology. What about following patients? Let's say she opts for a treatment, she's not scared off by the internet, and she opts for a treatment. What sort of surveillance are you doing? And, and Isabel was bringing this up beforehand, like, are you checking telopeptides on patients? Uh I know that's something that's out there. There's blood and urine studies that you could follow these markers of bone turnover. Should we be doing that?
3: Right, so I think it's important to separate into the two settings. Um, The person who's just being monitored who's not on therapy and the person who is on therapy. So the the scenario you brought up is someone who's on therapy. And disclaimer here, I'm on the American College of Physicians uh, Clinical Guidelines Committee. Okay, so I am going to talk about those guidelines. But the American College of Physicians guidelines uh, recommend that BMD monitoring not be done until after the five year treatment period. And by that, you would then extrapolate that, oh, they're recommending a five year treatment period for postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. And that's true. Three to five years um, because zoledronic acid IV can be three years, whereas oral bisphosphonates would be five and um and the reason is that there haven't been any randomized trials to actually show that bone density testing during therapy decreases fracture risk or that it increases adherence to medication and honestly i don't see that as a reason to get a bone density test because it's not an excuse or a replacement for just asking the patient politely hey do you think you're having any issues taking your medicine is there is there a problem here if they haven't had a fracture and they're taking their medicine, there's no need to do any test. And so I tell them right up front, here's how long I think I'm gonna treat you. Three to five years with a pill, uh, three years with annuals zoledronic acid, whatever the case may be. And then after that's done, we're gonna reconsider. We'll go ahead and consider checking a bone density test. We'll see what medicines you're on, um, what medical conditions are going on. And if I think you're at super high risk, I'll tell you so, and we'll make a decision together as to whether we want to do another three to five years of therapy or not. And at that point, we get into sort of that duration dependence of atypical femoral fracture and whether we should really extend or not. And we might extend in people who've already had a spine fracture or a hip fracture, uh, or they're at super high risk. Then we might tell them I don't have any clinical trials to say this, but you might want to consider that we extend your therapy for another couple years.
2: And you mentioned when you talk to patients, you talk to them about preventing hip fractures. You know, looking through the various different treatments, that seems to be the hardest one to prove that that these medications prevent hip fractures. Maybe I'm misinterpreting. I know the vertebral fractures and a lot of these, they prevent vertebral fractures or major osteoporotic fractures, but it seems like that's driven mainly by the vertebral fractures. And okay. the, the trials go like a year out. Is it is Are we just not doing them long enough, are hip fractures too rare for us to get enough events? You think that's what, like, do you think they really prevent hip fractures?
3: Yes, yeah, I mean, like, it's like a good thing. We're complaining about a good thing that hip fractures Uh, are not as common as spine. It's easier to prove spine. And it's easier to prove reduction in fractures in people who've already had a spine fracture or a hip Mm -hmm. fracture. Um, Because like we were alluding to before, they have a high, they start out at a higher baseline risk. Yeah, it's like with statins. For secondary um, so yes, it's true that there's this whole armamentarium of medication out there, but there are really only four that we would consider first line because they decrease the risk of hip fracture. And as I said, that's what the ACP and I believe what we should all be emphasizing as our gold standard is that that's what we need to demonstrate before we before we um, consider medicine first line is that reduction in, in hip fracture. So alendronate, risedronate, zoledronic acid, um, and denosumab are all proven to reduce risk of hip fracture. They're all considered first line. They all are associated with osteonecrosis of the jaw and atypical femoral fracture. The only difference about duration of treatment is that denosumab is, is off on its own in a separate category in that because... Um, its offset of action is really quick. And you would have to either replace it right away with a bisphosphonate if you stop it. And we don't know yet yeah, what right away means or with what, but probably with a bisphosphonate. Or you have to continue it forever. But I'm not happy about continuing it forever because there's never been a single clinical trial to tell us that that's okay. And I'm worried about the duration dependence of atypical femoral fracture. So that's sort of a long-winded way of saying, yes, all four of them are are first line, but I select bisphosphonates whenever possible. And if they can't be PO, I give it IV, zoledronic acid if I need to. Uh, But that's the reason that I tend to shy away personally from denosumab.
0: And when you're monitoring adherence to these medications, which have, if I remember correctly, a notoriously uh, horrible adherence rate, like I feel like it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 40% or something like that. How how are you asking about that? You know, it's it's not something I even think to ask very frequently, but I've never had someone report intolerance to it, which means I'm probably doing something wrong. So when you're asking about (laughs) adherence, like what what specifically are you asking, and how are you how are you following up on that?
3: Yeah, and you know what's really funny is they actually have done a study of people who said that they've had um, GERD or gastrointestinal upset, and they've when they've rechallenged, you know, using a, a comparison placebo. Most of the people who didn't tolerate it now tolerated it, so I think it's a it's a difficult issue because who do we tend to use these drugs in? People with GI issues because they're older and there's more reflux and more sort of dyspepsia potentially possibly uh, in that group. So, uh, but that said, if people who have garden variety GERD, it's fine as long as it's not a it's not a contraindication as long as it's not something like achalasia or you know something seriously wrong in terms of bad esophageal districtures in their esophagus. And I think that I, having them repeat back to you the instructions, so if they're going to take it orally, you know, have them say it back to you, wait, what were you going to do again with this pill? And then they'll say, well, I need to take it first thing in the morning on an empty stomach, don't take it with my calcium or any other pills because I have to take those later. And I only take it with a full glass of water, but not mineral water, or orange juice, and I can't lay down or eat for 30 minutes. And then I say, but I'll try to get rid of some of the pain of that. I'll try to see if we can get it weekly or monthly, if that really bothers you. And oddly enough, I've had people say, no, I'd rather do it every day because then I won't forget. It's part of my daily routine, like brushing my teeth. It's funny. But others will say, no way, can you please get me that annual injection? So people, it's very individual. But I have not had a high incidence of intolerance um, be reported. I, I just think that it's also important to um, get calcium and vitamin D replete before starting because that can cause aches and pain. Uh, so that, that is an issue that you want to make sure you, you take care of before you institute the bisphosphonate.
2: Before we move on, I just wanted to mention that I know there was a study in the annals, I think it was July 2020, that was talking about denosumab and these people during the pandemic who had been late getting their injections and talking about this problem that you alluded to where people are rapidly losing density when they stop them. So we should be asking our patients, hey, did you miss your injections if they did? thinking about putting them on something like an elendronate to exactly. make sure they don't lose it. That I had never really thought of that, and that was something that was just a total blind spot for me before I started prepping for this, and I'm glad you mentioned it. Hey, audience. Let me tell you about a brand that I love called Native. I've been using this brand for long before they were a sponsor on this podcast because my little sister was just raving about their deodorant, their body wash, and... My wife started buying it, and now we buy it in bulk, and we were so excited when Native reached out to us and wanted to advertise on the show. So let me tell you a little bit about Native. Native makes a legendary aluminum-free deodorant. They also make a body wash, they make toothpaste, and now they make a brand new mineral-based sunscreen. It is a broad-spectrum SPF 30 sunscreen for your face and body. It's lightweight, it absorbs quickly, and you can choose between either unscented or or coconut and pineapple. You can get their deodorant and body wash and amazing scents like coconut and vanilla, citrus and herbal musk, lavender and rose and more. And you can even build your own personalized product bundles where you can mix and match three of your favorite scents and keep them on rotation so you have something for every occasion. Stay fresh and clean with Native by going to nativedo.com slash curb or use promo code curb at checkout and get 20% off your first order that's nativedeo.com/curb or use the promo code curb at checkout for 20% off your first order so back to when i asked you the question a couple minutes ago we we did the surveillance for the patient on treatment and that was going to be we're going to do the eight follow the acp guideline wait either 3 years if they got the iv Zolendronate, or if they got five years of oral medicine, we'll check the bone density then and decide if we're going to do another course or continue. What if the person is not on treatment? And uh, I guess if they, have a, if they have osteoporosis, they should be on treatment, it sounds like. Maybe either the person that's on holiday, it, it, does it differ for the person that's on holiday how often you're repeating the bone density, or for the person who has osteopenia but not a high enough score for treatment? How, when do they get surveillance?
3: Right. So um, during the drug holiday, the frequency of bone density testing, absolutely unknown. Nobody really knows. (laughs) That's good to know. (laughs) Practice, most people, most experts probably would do it like two years into Mm -hmm. the holiday. I think it kind of depends also on the sort of uh, risk level that the physician thinks the patient has um, if they're extremely high risk. But I think the biggest lesson, and this actually goes for all the scenarios, treatment, not treatment, drug holiday, that a lot of physicians don't recognize, or we never learned it in our training, is that changes in bone density from test to test of like 3 to 6% at the hip and 2 to 4% at the spine can be just due to the precision error of the test itself over time. And you can make a mistake if you don't know that. So like i've had patients come running in and saying you can take your medicine and flush it down the toilet because look <laughs> my, my exercise and my calcium and vitamin d um you know look i have a 1% increase in my bone density and i have to find a gentle but clear way of saying you know i'm not sure that's a true biological change at all because that's well within a measurement error of the machine or precision error of the test so it means a we have to not be shy we have to get comfortable saying that to patients b we have to stick with the same machine over time because otherwise we can't say did this change from last time or not because each machine has its own quirky little measurement error and c it means look on your bone density report because it has to tell you something about the measurement error the precision error Or something like, this is a significant change since last time, or this is not a significant change, or sometimes they put a little asterisk to say that it's significant. But if your report doesn't say that, I would call the person reading those scans and find out if they can do it or find a DEXA machine where those reports will will report that information. It's super important. Uh, Otherwise, you could easily see how we'd make a mistake, either restarting or stopping or Doing something with a medicine that we shouldn't be doing if we, if we don't understand that information
2: Isabel, we for the first case with Miss Brittle, we've treated her, we talked to her about when she's going to get her follow-up testing. We really weren't messing with labs. Anything else that you wanted to to ask before we move on to to the second case?
1: with not, with her, not that I can think of because I think we covered it. we well if, if she's about to start treatment are we doing labs other than what we've alluded to right now about calcium, like about vitamin D, but is there anything else like renal function, calcium, phosphorus, like what should be any just general labs in addition to that? I think that's the only thing we might need to reiterate. Right.
3: And it's another thing that's very controversial um, because no one's ever proven like what's the right approach that actually reduces fractures or prevents medical errors or some sort of formal examination of that issue. in in any comprehensive way. But I'll tell you what is most commonly done is people will check uh, renal function and hepatic function. People will think about whether uh, myeloma is present. And that may mean some people are happy with CBC, sed rate, and calcium level. Others will actually want electrophoresis tests. You know, so that's not really clearly uh, drawn out yet, uh, whether you get SIEP, things like that. And then the thought about something like celiac disease. So I'll often just say, hey, has anyone ever mentioned anything like malabsorption or celiac disease to you? Or do you have diarrhea issues? Um, I might just do a quick screen that way if I'm seeing uh, someone um, as a consultation on that. And then thinking about, does this person look Cushingoid? Is, are they diabetic? Is there any, cause that could be a hint toward Cushing's. You know, it's hard to, I can't exactly dictate, you know, a Harrison's textbook of internal medicine of all the pages worth of secondary causes, but you know, go down their prior medical history, see if something rings a bell from your training of a set potential secondary cause. And if not, then I think the bare minimum is, you know, 25 hydroxy vitamin D to recap, um, the minimum that most experts would do is a hepatic panel, assessment of renal function, thinking about uh, celiac, uh, thinking about Cushing's, whether you need to test for that, and whether you need to look for a my- multiple myeloma um, with some form of labs, either SIEP or, or CBC, sedrate calcium, something along mm. those lines.
0: So, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're not collecting a 24-hour urine ca- calcium on all your patients. <laughs>
3: uh you know, technically, some of the guidelines have recommended that. I, <laughs> yeah. I am not. Yeah,
2: that NACE, actually, yeah.
3: Uh, I'm actually not doing that.
2: And, and let's be clear. I mean, for this oh, patient, and vitamin Ms. D.
3: I'm so sorry. I meant vitamin D. serum 25 sure. hydroxy vitamin D because you don't want to institute a therapy if they're uh, low on their serum 25 yeah. hydroxy D
2: what I was going to mention about Miss Brittle is that, I mean, this is an older patient. She's been on steroids for a long time. It's not surprising. So she's maybe someone that we wouldn't have to look like as hard for some of these other things. But I think it, it there's, I see a lot of patients and sometimes you're they have premature osteoporosis or like a fragility fracture. And certainly for those patients, that would get me thinking like, thyroid, check a PTH, like think about myeloma and and celiac, all these other things. I I think it's a great, great discussion.
3: Right. And uh, let me addend that too. And I should have said that Uh, TSH is also on my list that I check on everyone with newly diagnosed osteoporosis. PTH is controversial whether you actually check a parathyroid level or do you just do the calcium? Because I mentioned calcium. That's why I, I didn't specifically say parathyroid because I was already checking a calcium. So it's like if
2: the calcium's normal, the, but, the parathyroid yeah, is the a low yield. Forget it, yeah. Okay, good. I just, yeah I I when I order PTH I'm like please be normal <laughs> please be normal
3: I have a tendency to order the PTH uh, in addition to a, a comprehensive metabolic panel that's mm-hmm. how I that's how I I do it and then and a TSH and a twenty five hydroxy and then I just think about the Cushing's and I think about celiac and I think about myeloma and see if I want to yeah. do something about those and we have to keep in mind that bone loss is only about one percent per year. On average, and so that's much less than the precision error. So we don't want to monitor too frequently, right? It's one percent versus three to five percent or six percent measurement error. Um, so unless they have a seriously bad secondary uh, cause of bone loss, we we don't want to order uh, serial scans in general every year. Uh, that's the first thing, and we base it on their baseline risk. And so if their baseline bone density is like barely osteopenic. We don't wanna to have to feel really nervous that we do it in two years. You know, those women can, if they're postmenopausal older women, they may be able to wait five years or more. And this is, uh, it's controversial now. So this is, I'm talking about expert opinion, actually based on uh, some studies that, uh, that we conducted, uh, but evidence is still considered insufficient for the United States Preventive Services Task Force to actually set a frequency of screening. Serial BMD, but just keep in mind that that precision error and that and that usual bone loss is much less each year than the measurement error would be.
1: So bone loss less than the that the machine being wrong or the machine being different.
3: It's not wrong, but it's not right. wrong. Yeah, quirky measurement error. Yeah, a range. Everything is a range. It could be plus minus. That's how we could explain it to patients. Plus minus three percent on either end.
2: Paul, did you have, you wanted to bring up the the dental stuff?
0: Well, sure. So yeah, the setting that we're actually seeing this patient is in the setting of dental surgery clearance. And I feel like this question comes up a lot. So let's say that um, Ms. Hueso, we've we've started bisphosphonate after repleting her. We've not found any exciting secondary causes. I mean, obviously she's on the steroid therapy, but in any case, let's say that we've placed this patient on a bisphosphonate prior to this, this whole dental question. Can you talk to us about how bisphosphonate therapy specifically should be managed in the setting of dental procedures because I feel like this comes up in primary care offices a fair amount.
3: Right. So if if it's a person actually who's got cancer especially, we want to actually wait do any elective dental work and take care of any dental issues before we even start it. And that's generally a safe policy for everyone it preferred if possible. And then once it's started, so we so we keep in mind the risk is between one in 10 to one in 100,000 for uh, osteoarthritis <laughs> minus. of the jaw. It's really low. So it's only increased slightly above what the background population is. Our best uh, way of present- preventing it that we know of is good oral hygiene. So seeing the dentist. So do not run away from the dentist, even though that seems paradoxical. See the dentist at least every six months or more, if they say. And then I give them that patient handout that I mentioned before from the international collaboration, um, which includes the oral maxillofacial surgeons and the American Society Bone Research. It's great because it's intended to to tell patients what to do. But basically routine dental work, dental fillings, uh, cleaning, you can do them as usual and don't even have to stop osteoporosis treatment. When this is uh, of course, based on that position statement that I'm sort of recapping here. If oral surgery is needed, obviously, you know, you you try to do it beforehand, but if you can't, you see, okay, how big time is this surgery? Um, If it's just dental cleaning, don't have to stop. But if they have risk factors for osteonecrosis of the jaw, or if it's a major oral surgery that's invasive, then you wanna hold the medication, the anti-resorptive until mucosal healing, which takes about one to two months. And risk factors would include things like diabetes, glucocorticoid therapy, dentures, smoking, periodontal disease, uh, angi- anti-angiogenic agents. And so, so if, you, if you're if you interested in looking this up, it's K-H-A-N, Kahn et al., in 2017 um, in the Journal of Clinical Densitometry. Um, but I give that ha- out, handouts out to my patients too.
2: Isabel, do you want to... Do you want to go into the second case and we can, uh, I know we have, we have a bit of, a little bit of time left and, and a couple questions left to ask.
1: Sure. So in this next case, we have uh, Ms. Femur, who is a 58-year-old female with known osteoporosis that presents for follow-up after she broke her left humerus while helping her daughter move a heavy table. This was without any falls and without trauma. She has been on alendronate for four years, along with calcium, uh, to tw- 1,200 um, milligrams a day, and vitamin D about 1,000 IU's a day. Her most recent DEXA has shown no change in her osteoporosis. How should we approach the treatment for her at this point? While following a low trauma fracture, while she's on treatment with the bisphosphonate, and like, how frequently should we be we checking her? And will she ever have a holiday at this point because she had a fracture? So many thoughts.
3: Right. So um, the ACP guidelines um, say straight out, if you if you look in the in the clinical applications section of that guideline, they say the optimal duration of treatment is unknown. I mean, like they gave it the best evidence based guess they could say for run of the mill osteoporosis being five years for let's say for an oral bisphosphonate, but we don't have any clinical trials that have gone longer, and so. This then becomes expert opinion, and what we do is we often pull in some post hoc data that suggests that there are two studies, that if it's an oral bisphosphonate, you may do better doing 10 years instead of five-year duration if that person has a prior vertebral fracture or if their T-score stays less than or equal to negative 2.5. And the same would hold true for zoledronic acid if it were six years versus three years. They may have fewer vertebral fractures if they continue that 10 years versus five or six years versus three for zoledronic acid. But where does a humerus fracture fit into this? No idea because that wasn't in the, um, in the post hoc uh, data. I would probably consider it to be along the lines of a pre-existing uh, minimal trauma fracture And so I probably would tell her, look, uh, you may be, you don't exactly fit what the studies have shown us, but you may be at an increased risk more than someone who doesn't have this situation. And so maybe you would benefit from continuing for 10 years versus five. The other thing I tell them is these drugs are not perfect. So if they reduce the risk of fracture by like 50%, then some people are still going to fracture when they're on these medications. As much as I sorry that that's happened. It's horrible. But what that makes us do is not necessarily stop a medicine or not necessarily change it. It should make us be triggered. Go back. Have I thought of all the secondary causes, really? Did I check things, you know, um, and really try to to get at, um, is there something that I might have missed?
2: Carolyn what I wanted to ask you if we change this case slightly cuz I don't think we've talked about this yet with either of our cases what if she had CKD stage 3 or on the borderline of stage 3 stage 4 where her eGFR is like 30 sometimes it's 28 when you check it does that mean that like she has to get denosumab and bisphosphonates are a no go you know i i've i've had uh when when i used to in a in a prior place where i worked When I would order zoledronic acid, they would always make us get a creatinine. And I would like, sometimes the person, like I'm I'm thinking of a couple specific patients that were, depending on the day we got it, they might get a 34 EGFR, they might get a 28. And that depended on whether or not it got improved. Approved.
3: Right, right. And, you know, right. Who can say there's actually a difference between 28 and 30, right? This is sort of a a random, it's not like a threshold. Um, Right. It's a very tough one. And bisphosphonates are not recommended in people with GFR less than 30 because, and it's interesting because the label says that it's because of lack of clinical experience. Yeah. So yes, you'll probably be stuck with denosumab in that situation. Now, and I don't mean to be demeaning, stuck, right? It, it is a powerful drug and it's good at reducing <laughs> hip fractures. But what I mean is it puts you in a thorny position because you can't actually stop it. But we don't actually know that doing it forever is okay. Um, in terms of safety, we don't know how to counsel patients, safety, efficacy, how to balance that over the long term. And the other thing is that people with CKD are actually at higher risk, potentially, of having mineral disturbances when they're on denosumab specifically. So you have to be really careful, you have to monitor uh, their lights and, um, and just be careful. Uh, but, but it's a bit of a black box what to do right now
2: guess another question I, I had for you that we we also haven't covered. If Miss Femur had been to, let's say she'd been to an endocrinologist and they were feeling, they, they put her on this new romosuzumab for a year. This is a monoclonal antibody. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but I... I get the sense that looking at the Endocrine Society guidelines, they list both teriparatide and romosozumab as like treatments that you can use those first for very high risk patients, and then after you've used those for one or two years, you can then move them over to bisphosphonates or denosumab. Is that something that like practically that you're ever doing? You're you're putting people on these like mm-hmm. uh, an, like these anabolic agents, so to speak, and then putting them on the bone conserving
3: agents. Right. So no, no, I'm not. Um, And uh, I would say, I suppose there's some uh, conflict among, across different guidelines about that. Yeah. So I say that I'm sticking with ACPs, American College of Physicians guideline approach of prioritizing the hip fracture. Mm -hmm. So if teriparatide and abaloparatide do not yet have demonstrated reduction in hip fracture efficacy, you know, hip fractures, mm-hmm. then I'm not using those as first line. I also don't think patients are into the idea of daily injections in most cases. Right. Right. And you have a lifetime <laughs> limit, and so you're still stuck with at some point making some other decision, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: In terms of romosozumab, so it's a, it's a sclerostin inhibitor, a monoclonal antibody, it increases bone formation. Uh, If you look carefully at the label, it's specifically approved to treat osteoporosis in postmenopausal women who are at high risk for fracture, meaning especially they've had a history of osteoporotic fractures or that they have failed other therapy. That's strictly speaking. Now, why? It's because that's what the trials really did. They enrolled these women who were at particularly high risk. Similarly, contraindicated in hypocalcemia, in the two trials by Cosman and SOG in New England Journal, there was you know, a signal of still you can't get out of the osteonecrosis of the jaw issue or atypical femoral fractures or MACE events, major uh, adverse cardiovascular events, yeah. and hypocalcemia. So very, now, it's hard to tease those apart because in the trials, which led to the labeling, romo was given in sequence with other medicine and you know mm-hmm. can i really say that oh it's the denosumab that they got um afterwards or it's the alendronate that they got afterwards that that gave osteonecrosis i mean i don't think we really know these things yet but i would say i don't consider it as a first-line option right now particularly in run-of-the-mill osteoporosis to use romosozumab and i so i i tend to avoid it for the time being. And I worry about those cardiovascular events for sure. So I'm very careful who I would think about using that in.
2: And Paul, I think probably to take us home here with Ms. Femur, you had some questions about like the primary care aspects?
0: Well, yeah, I I thought for a change, we'd, we'd get a patient before they have a diagnosis, I think was something that I wanted to talk about. So it's You know, a lot of this show is just us admitting things that we don't do well. And I think another thing that I I don't do well is is counsel patients in terms of how to prevent uh, low bone mineral density or osteoporosis. And I'm just wondering, in terms of, like, some of it sounds like the stuff that we'd be counseling about anyway, in terms of, you know, minimizing alcohol use and avoiding tobacco products and routine exercise and so forth and so on. But I'm wondering if you have a, a spiel or an approach to sort of doing preemptive counseling rather than... Um, waiting until osteoporosis declares itself and having these complicated medications uh, to deal with?
3: Right, so my general approach is, I tell people, I want you to do resistance exercise. I want you to do weight-bearing exercise, gentle resistance. I refer them to National Osteoporosis Foundation to get materials about that. Um, and, um, But I also tell them that we're not exactly sure how frequent or what kind of exercise actually leads to decreased fractures. We don't have that in a clinical trial. So it may seem simple to just say, yeah, I counsel them about physical activity. It's actually not all that simple, but yeah, avoiding alcohol. Don't drink more than one drink a day. Don't smoke. Really assess their fall risk. I always ask them, are you falling at home? Can we make it safer? Do you have lights going up your front walk? Loose wires, throw rugs. Do you need a rail in the bathtub? Those kinds of things even before they've had a fracture if they just seem frail to you you know it might just be logical to go over some of that so those would be the the biggest things but also remember that a t score of less than -2.5 if it's the first bone density scan that might be their peak their personal peak In other words, we don't know. Maybe that's just what they were when they were 30 years old, and it's all downhill from, you know, (laughs) we don't know. know,
2: Well, Paul was actually asking for a friend. He actually has osteoporosis.
3: In other words, what I'm trying to say is it's more frightening if it continues to go down on another scan, let's say three, five, seven years down the line. That's scarier than Instantly saying, especially like in a woman who's 65, like on the first scan, oh my gosh, you know, panic time, you know, take it easy. Think, think, especially if it's their first scan, think about secondary causes, but no matter whether you're going to give them medication or not, they have to do the life. They should do these lifestyle things. Your peak bone mass happens when you're like 29 years old. So actually much of this uh, growth happens in kids, which as internists, I, I, I wouldn't really be seeing. So having across the lifespan during the peak bone years, having calcium and vitamin D sufficiency is really important for forming peak bone mass. And then on the older side, it probably helps prevent your decline in bone density. Is it enough? No, probably not. Should it be sufficiency levels? In anyone you're going to treat for osteoporosis? Yes, for sure. So um, I say sufficiency really carefully. It doesn't have to be a supplement. It can be you get enough calcium or vitamin D from your diet. And then you may, if you really need to, you make up the leftovers in a supplement if you really have to. But we try to focus on diet. And we should always be using the recommended doses from the Institute of Medicine. So if you just Google IOM vitamin D you'll find this really short four page document called the report brief. And it has a little table and it has your doses for men and doses for women in each different age group. So they're sex specific, age group specific. And um, that really is the dose set. And I will hand that out to all my patients um, so that they know what we're talking about. Emphasizing diet and following those IOM Institute of Medicine um, recommended intakes is important, but it's not an excuse not to take medicine. Unfortunately, if you already have osteoporosis,
2: and I know this is a a potential big can of worms, so I I don't think we we don't have time to spend too much on it. I just think the the vitamin D enthusiasm, the more is better stuff, is really in, in from what I can tell from the literature, come into question. And so, the Institute of Medicine has a very reasonable amount that they recommend compared to. I know some patients are taking, you know, really high doses, patients that, you know, I'm not talking someone who's had a, a gastric bypass and has an absorption issue. I, I think just your, your average patient thinks, oh, I, I should take a lot of vitamin D because my mom had a hip fracture. And uh, I, I'm not sure how you counsel patients about that, if it's just take follow Institute of Medicine or not.
3: It's so funny because I use your specific words, your exact words. I say more is not better. <laughs> What we need is if we've seen you in a low range, then we need to see you get to at least 20 nanogram per mil level, 20 to 30 is probably a good range. And then you go on a maintenance dose, but you don't want excess levels. I just wanna see you get up into that range and then maybe we can check it once a year. But we should though take a moment to just remind people those intake guidelines that I mentioned are for the whole general population. We all need to be getting that in intake, but we do not routinely check levels on everybody for serum, hydroxy, vitamin D. It's a really important point. If someone has a reason, a medical illness why we have to, uh, malabsorption, um, you know, then it's reasonable, of course, or osteoporosis if they're deficient and you really need to get them sufficient before you sure. institute medicine but not for the general population.
2: Yeah. You're working someone up for hypercalcemia, things like calcium disorders, th- that right. sort of thing. Yeah. Right. So I think, I mean, we could ask you questions about this forever. We've done, uh, we've done a lot. We've covered a lot of ground. But if you had like two or three favorite pearls that you wanted the audience to remember, what would those be?
3: Well, do they have to come from today? <laughs>
2: Uh, they don't know. No. no, I mean, this is a this can be a bonus round if you want.
3: Um, wow. Keep, but curl. I would
2: like them to cover okay. osteoporosis. You know, bonus. Oh okay. <laughs> okay,
3: I think keep curls because I, I try to view it as a as an overall perspective. PCPs, primary care practitioners of of every discipline, family med, internal med, PAs, are really time restricted, and they've got to worry about the sprained ankles and the blood pressure and the cholesterol on the diabetes. So not frequently rescreening people who are otherwise generally healthy, and rather shift the resources to those older women, one quarter of whom are not getting their initial bone density test. That would be the first key point. Don't over screen the healthy 55 year old, don't do that. (laughs) because only one quarter of the older women who should be getting screening based on bone density are getting tested. And the other key point would be that we need to do better at not letting people fall through the holes, the cracks, where they have an initial fracture, but we don't recognize it as a disease of osteoporosis. So a spine fracture, hip fracture, or in some cases, a wrist fracture, as we mentioned. Those are major osteoporotic fractures. And I don't let that next one be the hip fracture. So we do a very poor job in this country, only about 10 to 30%, depending what study, of people who get discharged after hip fracture get treated for their osteoporosis within six months. So don't ignore those first fractures and don't over-screen people at the cost of underscreening the high-risk people.
2: I think those are excellent take-home points. Thank you so much.
3: My pleasure.
0: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole.
1: Que rico.
0: (laughs) I like (laughs) it. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
2: And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice-changing knowledge, but we'd appreciate your feedback. So please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks for our producer for this episode. Isabel Valdez, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Maddog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov on the website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter on the transcription team, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. And Paul, before we get to Isabel, I should remind the audience that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Uh, thanks to VCU Health Continuing Education for providing that. So finally, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
1: I'm Physician Assistant Isabel Valdez.
0: And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music that you are doubtless hearing behind our voices now. We should also thank the great Claire Morgan of Nutterly for editing our audio. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.